let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Today on CityCast DC, it's a new year, but we are still talking about some familiar storylines. Football ineptitude, January 6th fallout, and the fate of Central Washington. We'll discuss the rollout of the new Washington Commander's mascot, the latest Capitol trial updates, and a new plan to populate DC's downtown. Today is Friday, January 6th, 2023. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. I'm here with Priyanka Tilve, our rock star producer. How you doing? Good, good. Happy to be here. And with beloved CityCast contributor, Dan Reed. Hey, Dan. Morning. How's it going? Good. And I want to discuss a very unlikely one of us this morning, a Washington character that nobody had heard about until about a week ago or two weeks ago. And now he is probably not to his liking the talk of the town. His name is Major Tutty. Uh, he is not, to my knowledge, actually an officer of the United States Armed Forces. He is the new mascot of the Washington commanders. He is a six foot five inch pig. Which is terrifying. With a military helmet. This is, uh, for the uninitiated, this is an homage to the teams of the 80s when the team was actually good. And their like, offensive linemen were, uh, were called the Hogs. And they were, like at the time, like the biggest, baddest players in football. And uh, they had a kind of like hard hat, blue collar reputation. And uh, they were like quite beloved. And so this is like an homage to them. But of course, this is the Dan Snyder era of the Washington Commanders. And so they are suing. That is to say, the original <laughs> hogs are like, we don't like the owner and we don't like that you're profiting off our image and we don't like this at all. And meanwhile, independent of that, people have some very strong opinions about Major Tutty himself. Mike, just to like, before we get into like all of those different details, why were they called the hogs in the first place? I got to ask. All right. So at the time, they were just way bigger than mm. your average offensive line. They were kind of chunky. And I think like it started as a training camp nickname, you hogs. But it mm. was adopted as a kind of point of pride in the same way that like, and they had sort of a blue collar reputation. So they also made a point of pride out of their like not being like really stylish dudes. They had like bad 80s, 70s mustaches and, and right. so on. And this was a, like, a different time when athletes were not fashion plates. Yeah. Um, so like kind of like hogs, like willing to get dirty, willing to like roll yes. around in the dirt if that's what you need to do to like get that touchdown. And like they sold a poster of themselves where it was like they were all in like top hat and tails and black tie. And the idea was like, look how funny this is. Like, can you imagine like professional athletes, like uh, blockers in can top hats and tails? That's wild. <laughs> but it was like sort of a play on their reputation as like dudes who get their uniforms dirty. Got it. All right. Oh, I love that. So I sort of feel like all sports mascots, you either have to be like ferocious and like threatening, or you have to be like cuddly and goofy. 
And the problem with Major Tutty is he is neither. He's not something that could like legitimately intimidate an opponent the way like an eagle could or something. But he's also a little bit scary looking. It looks a little bit like a anti-war protesters like caricature of a like military thug. He's got a sort of steel, like uh, World War I style military helmet on and a somewhat menacing smile on his face. And it kind of misses the mark. And I, I get that this team has this whole idea that they're going to do like military branding and stuff. <laughs> and it doesn't necessarily press my buttons, but I don't, I'm not against it for any reason. I just think this is like, well, I guess fans never like the new mascots. But in this case, I think there's a lot to not like. I feel like in the age of gritty I expect my sports mascots to be significantly more unhinged. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good point. He's, he's not the bringer of chaos that I, I would prefer. Gritty for the uninitiated is the Philadelphia uh, Flyers mascot, and he is indeed unhinged. But like, people have Christmas ornaments of Gritty and stuff like that. Yeah, people love Gritty. I don't think people are responding to Teddy the way they responded to Gritty. Like They might both be like unhinged in their own kind of ways, but Gritty feels like lovably unhinged and Teddy feels like the stuff of nightmares. I don't know if you guys watched. Did you watch the announcement video that they put out? I did. So like yeah. it starts with, uh, <laughs> it starts with, I think it's like a former coach. Joe Bugle. Yeah. Who's the okay. offensive line coach. Right. Okay. So it starts with like a video of him saying, okay, you hogs, let's get running down there. And then like transitions into this like really cheesy music and you see Teddy come out and he's like dabbing a lot for some (laughs) God knows what reason. And then like patting his belly and it just, it looks like it's like this massive creepy pig that both thinks he's really cool and also wants to eat you. Like that's the feeling I get uh, he, when I watch this video. He looks like like he should be arrested for like uh, crimes at Abu Ghraib or <laughs> Eli or something like that. I, I, the other thing is you have to explain what his name means. Uh, mm-hmm. Apparently, in football talk, Tuddy TD is um, is touchdown. Nope. I'm not like an enormous like I'm not, I don't play like fantasy football or anything, but I'm like relatively up to speed on this, and I didn't know that the name didn't instantly say that to me. So it just for fans and for like the culture of Washington, even if you don't care at all about football or or this team, it's like another like kind of roll your eyes cringe thing in the Dan Snyder era where like they just seemed like they can't do anything right. And it may, it may be that like, look, if there was a different owner and the team was good, people would be like, hey, we're into Major Tutty. And there's just like no cutting the man any slack whatsoever. But it just seems like here's another thing that they're screwing up and that we can all get together and like either laugh about together or cringe about together. Maybe that's like a great thing for like civic unity or something. Even the the backstory is kind of lame. Like he grew up watching the football and he he loved it. And he's from Upper Marlboro, which is supposed to be a pun. And B-O-A-R. Yeah. The first thing I thought about that was like, well, you know, Dan Snyder wants to move the, the stadium out of Prince George's counties, but uh, we'll give you Major Tutty. That's what you get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a pretty lame backstory. There's not much to that. It's not very inspiring. No, and I don't, I mean, again, this could be the last big rollout of the Dan Snyder era if people's potentially wish casting is to be believed about the team no longer being in his ownership. 
how often is it acceptable to change your mascot? Like, can new owners come in and be like, yeah, we're done with this major teddy guy? I look at if I was like a professional marketing and branding and mascotting consultant, I'd probably be paying, be paid a lot more than you lot pay me. <laughs> but I think when there's a post Dan Snyder ownership, I think there's going to be like a lot of grace given to a sort of complete about face and erasure of anything and everything that they want to erase. And it'll be treated like the way like, I don't know, like a Star Wars fans treat some like non-canonical episode in the story where it's just going to be like wished away. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So from the sublime to the terrifying, Priyanka, why don't you tell us what's going on? There is a trial of members of the Proud Boys around January 6th. We are on the anniversary of January 6th. Do you want to give us a heads up about what's going on? Yeah, I mean, basically, I just feel like it's weird to have an episode come out on January 6th in local DC news and not even touch on it, right? Like, there are a few dates in all of our lives, I think, where you know exactly where you were when something happened. So like, for me, like 9-11 is a definite one the week the pandemic started, and then January 6th is one as well. Just like, it felt like everything kind of came to a standstill. And so I just feel like it's a good opportunity to take some time now and like talk about where we are with those various trials. I mean, there were, prosecutors estimate that there were more than 2,000 people at the Capitol that day. So they're, you know, churning out arrests. I think it's at this point around 900 people have been charged give or take a few dozen. And then the thing that people have been talking about a lot this week is that Proud Boys trial that you mentioned because they haven't been able to get a jury for it to the extent that the trial itself is being just delayed indefinitely because they need to find 12 people in Washington that, you know, either haven't heard of the Proud Boys or don't have strong opinions about them. Can I read you the sentence from the Post report yeah. of it? Because it's sort of a masterpiece of understatement. Go for it. Defense attorneys expressed concern about the emotional impact of the evidence. That means they are looking for jurors who not only lack a negative perception of the Proud Boys, but express no strong feelings about the Holocaust, the Black Lives Matter movement, women's rights, or gay rights. Right. It's like... <laughs> How are you going to find that? I mean, in most big cities, but especially a city like D.C., we have strong feelings about everything and then those topics especially. So I think 100 percent of people have strong feelings about the Holocaust and most yeah. of them are negative. Unfortunately, some <laughs> seem to be positive. Right. But um, but I don't think there's anyone in the middle. Exactly. So I don't see this trial ever starting. I don't know. Like, what do you guys 
think about when you think about January 6th? Like, does it, is it the trials? Or do you think about like the the moment when you heard about the news happening? Like, I feel so naive when I think about that day. I was at the beginning of the day, I was making jokes about like, look at these people. They want to have a coup, mm. you know, like as if like that only happens in other countries. And there it was. One of the things I think about as a Washingtonian is it's one of these weird moments where like hometown D.C. and federal D.C. run into each other and they ran into each other in the form of the cops. And, you know, I think there is the disdain that's been shown for some of them by members of Congress is like there is a sort of upstairs downstairs quality where like, oh, we fly in for sessions. But here are these the people who like clean the streets and keep us safe and serve our food and stuff. This is the rare time we have to acknowledge their humanity and and their having like saved our necks. Right. It also intersects like not even just in terms of the cops, but also just we live here. Like I, I live a few blocks away from there. I didn't particularly feel unsafe on that day, but I did notice a really massive increase in police presence on the streets and like also fewer locals walking around in the week after. Like it just felt kind of like a dead town for the week after January 6th. And my phone was constantly blowing up with people concerned about me. So even though I wasn't necessarily scared, like it it did feel like it was a big local impact in that way. Hey, Dan, where were you that day? I was driving down from Frederick, ironically. And I just remember I was there when I heard about it. And I spent an hour in the car driving home, listening to it on the the radio, just trying to make sense of it. And it was one of those days like 9-11 where the only thing I could think to do was go home and turn on the news and just sit in front of the television hoping to make sense of it. I live in Silver Spring, and even up there, I could hear the sirens going by my house as as various first responders were heading downtown. And it was particularly surreal about it was watching the videos that came out of it. The one that always stuck with me is the Capitol Police officer who it, it looks like he's running towards the group of people mobbing the Capitol, but he's actually deflecting them away. And at one point, they get like 10 feet away from members of Congress. So January 6th felt especially personal to me, and I think others living in Silver Spring, because Jamie Raskin was our congressman. And he was one of the very prominent voices in the January 6th commission. He lives a couple of blocks away from me. He and his family were stuck in the Capitol on the day of perhaps fearing for their lives. He had lost his son just a couple of weeks earlier. And so it was very remarkable to see how he stepped up uh, to try and bring out the truth of what happened that day. He most recently was diagnosed with cancer. Hopefully we'll be able to recover soon. But he's somebody I think about a lot in regards to January 6th. It feels very, very personal, very local to me. One of my memories of that day, I was an editor at the time and I I was home watching TV and I you know, was sort of... The newsman in me was like, why aren't I there? I should be like witnessing this stuff. We forget now, but we were also afraid of being around those people because of COVID, because this was right. not a, you know, probably a heavily vaxxed crowd. Plus, this was January 2021. No mm-hmm. one was really vaxxed right. yet. Right. Right. But they, this was not a crowd taking uh, adequate precautions, right. so we say. Yeah, for sure. You know, the, this week is also the publication of a book by the head of the Capitol Police who was ousted right after January 6th because the because of intelligence failures and, and other things. This book is kind of a self-exculpatory book, and there's a lot of other cops who have very negative views of him. But one of the things that I wrote about in my political column today 
one of the things he says was sort of a reason why this got so terrible was that he wanted to call out the National Guard. He thinks this is a thing that needs to get fixed through process. One of the things I thought was interesting in there, it's sort of a lot of food for thought, is he suggests that the slow call or the non-call out of the National Guard on January 6th was about overlearning the lessons from the previous summer, from the Black Lives Matter protests, when I think we most people agree that there was like a horrendous overdoing it of using the military in a politicized fashion. The thing is that as we go forward, as we look at the kinds of things that you are going to have to call out the National Guard for, there's obviously like Hurricane Katrina and like those sorts of natural disasters, but never before have domestic disturbances tracked so closely with partisan politics. The National Guard was on the streets of Washington after the 1968 when there were riots and large parts of the city burned. Those were obviously political, but they were not tracking with like Democrats against Republicans, one party against another, who will control the country. And nowadays, the kinds of things, if you close your eyes and you imagine like what sort of disturbance could hit Washington or any other city, the chances are you are going to imagine something that that involves domestic radicals and that it's going to track pretty closely with party identification. And at that point, it becomes devilishly complicated to decide when do we want to have the military on our streets? Because we live in a free society. We don't, it is appropriate to not want that, to feel very uncomfortable about that. And that means there's going to be blown calls and there's probably going to be just inherently more danger. If I recall the summer of 2020, the DC police, and they are an urban police force. They are trained to deal with people and all of their screwiness and imperfection. And so, and when you had you know, prison guards from Oklahoma or whatever they were bringing in. Like those guys, you know, they're not trained for such things. Yeah. The response to the George Floyd protests was ominous and like and dark and and felt frightening. Um, Right. But so the the connection between the two things, though, is if we feel like there wasn't enough backup on January 6th and the backup was completely wrong after George Floyd, this is a sort of an open question, and I don't think anyone has answered it. And I think that this book by Chief Sund suggests a bunch of like process answers for it, but I think the mm-hmm. answer's got to be deeper because it's about sort of acknowledging what kind of society we are at the national level. And it's weird, you know, as a Washingtonian, like, I don't know, this city is not particularly full of insurrectionists. It's, it's mm-hmm. sort of what do we do when, when America, in all its division, comes to our doorstep? Right. Kind of felt like an invasion. Yeah, both of those things did. Yeah. Meanwhile, in hometown politics and inaugurations that were not threatened with mob violence, Muriel Bowser has been sworn in for her third term. And at her inauguration, she made a big promise that is like a really interesting change and tracks with something we've talked about quite a lot on CityCast, which is she wants to move a bunch more people into downtown Washington. I don't mean central Washington. I mean like the part of downtown that right now you think of as like nothing but office buildings and stores that close at 6 p.m. This is right up your professional alley. Dan, tell us like what's she promising and what are the prospects for it? Right. So uh, downtown D.C. hit an unfortunate milestone late last year, which is that one fifth of all of the office space is vacant. And so at her inauguration, Mayor Bowser says she wants to add 15,000 more people to live downtown in the hopes they might fill some of that vacant office space and the long term have 100,000 people living downtown. You know, one of the big reasons why downtown offices are so vacant is because there are a lot of federal agencies downtown and they 
the workers have not been fully called back to the office yet. Mm -hmm. So she asked the president, you know, to get those people back to the office or, you know, if the federal government doesn't want to use those spaces all the time to to liquidate them, right? Let other people use them. Let DC government use them. Let nonprofits use them. Let other businesses take that space or turn it into housing. Because the federal government owns or leases like a third of DC office space. At least that's what Bowser said. So obviously that's a huge proportion. But does she have the power to force them out or to, is there like a legislative fix or is it just, hey, if you guys aren't going to use it, could you be good guys and, and give it up? This is mainly the bully pulpit. It's a huge presence downtown and DC government doesn't have a huge amount of say over who is in that office space. But what they can do is create incentives to convert that space to something else, right? And this has been a conversation for years about how can we get more people living downtown and how can we incentivize that? Because a lot of the a lot of the office buildings in downtown are, are older, from like the 50s and 60s. They aren't desirable as office space anymore. And so are there tax incentives or building height incentives the city can say to developers that would encourage them to convert that space to something else? And we're starting to see a few buildings downtown converted to residential uses or in some cases knocked down and replaced by apartment buildings. What intrigues me about it is like if you go to the downtown of any other big American city, you know, Philadelphia, New York, San Francisco, the big difference you see is that people live downtown. And that creates a totally different vibe. It means there's more people out on the streets in the evenings and on weekends. It means, like you said, Mike, places are open after six o'clock. It means you have more neighborhood bars. It means you have more neighborhood serving businesses. It feels like a place you'd actually want to go uh, as opposed to just a place you have to go for work every day. Right. And so the retail that's been closing downtown anyway because of the transformation of American retail, that Marshall's that's closing could turn into like a Safeway to serve the residents who live nearby. That's the idea, right? Exactly. I think one of the things that uh, really threw me for a loop was the Federal City Council, which is sort of a big civic organization overseeing all this kind of stuff in D.C., took city leaders on a tour of other successful downtowns. And where they went was National Landing in Arlington and (laughs) Bethesda. It was shocking to hear D.C. officials saying, we actually want to be more like Bethesda or Arlington because their downtowns are also places where lots of people are living and they're reaping the benefits in the form of big companies like Amazon choosing to locate in Arlington over D.C. or Marriott locating its headquarters in downtown Bethesda. And it just feels safer when there's a lot of people walking around. Exactly. It sort of becomes this positive cycle effect, right? If more people are out downtown, you feel safer downtown, which means you want to spend more time downtown, which means more people are coming downtown. Well, it's, but on the other hand, there's a sort of a weird uh, tension about Bowser's position because she is effectively saying to the boss of a lot of her constituents, hey, make your workers go back to the office, which a lot of workers don't personally want to do, even if they, in the aggregate, want to live in a city where everyone goes in. Yeah, it's strange. I think your take on this comes down to how you feel about working from home. I enjoyed it a lot for the first like year or so of the pandemic, and then I got very tired of that. And as soon as my office and my former job reopened in November of 2021, I was going three and four days a week, and I loved it. There <laughs> were days when I was the only person on the entire floor, and it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really the commute you missed. It, it's a mile. <laughs> well, let me ask you this, project this out for me. Uh, let's say we go back to a thing where the feds are back in the office. They're going in three, four days a week, three days a week. Let's say three days a week. Are they in that shortened week? Are they going out to lunch more 
or less than they used to? Is it, hey, I've only got three days of this, so I'll just put up with the sad desk lunch for three days? Or is it like, wow, I'm downtown. Let me use this opportunity to go out to lunch. Because I think the answer to that, if part of the purpose of trying to get people downtown in offices is so that they can, again, engage in commerce and keep these businesses afloat. The answer to that is relevant. Yeah, your, your hope yeah. is that people will come downtown and they'll, they'll buy their $20 salads and they'll go make impulse purchases at whatever store and they'll have their coffee and they'll you know maybe drop another $20 to park if they feel like driving into the city. And those have huge you know, knock-on effects on the city and the region, right? Mayor Bowser's other promise at her inauguration is that she does not want to raise residential property taxes. And the only way that that can happen is that revenue is coming from somewhere else. Either you have more businesses downtown generating sales tax and income tax, or you have more people living downtown so that landlords are paying more property taxes. I have read that Washington has the highest work from home rate in the country. I've heard that too. Yeah, there was also a report that came out from the Rockefeller Institute of Government in September. And I think that might be what you're thinking about, Mike, because I remember that as a team, we talked about this, that D.C. has 51 percent of people working from home. And that is way beyond any other city in the country. So part of that is just the nature of our economy here. There's not a lot of factories and stuff. But part of it is also that the city officialdom is hoping that at least the second half of that can be lobbied in such a way as to get people back into the metro, onto the streets, keep stores open, keep the metro afloat. You go to downtown Washington and it's it just, compared to downtowns of other cities, it does not feel, it still feels very, very, very different than it did three years ago. Yeah, totally. And if you want to know more about downtown issues generally, we actually put out an episode about this a few months ago with Tristan Navera from the Washington Business Journal. Mike interviewed him, and it does a really great job of breaking down some of these factors. So check that out. All right. Thank you, Priyanka and Dan. Happy New Year, you guys. Happy, Happy New, New Year. Year. And we will see you all next Friday. And that's it for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilvey. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Mike Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend who works for the feds and they may be working at home and maybe they'll be coming downtown. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. Hi, I'm Eva. I'm Mike's daughter, and I'm homesick today. Oh, she really does sound sick, poor thing. Um, all right, here is where the the video where they rolled out the new mascot. All right, give us your give us your review. It looks like he's wearing like a hat that someone from the colonies would wear, which seems like it still taps back into the Redskins area. He's also just weird. <laughs> Why is he dapping? Yeah, I don't like him.